Our scripture readings this morning are from Isaiah in the Old Testament and John in the New. If you'd like to follow along in Isaiah uh, chapter 54, it'll be on page 653 in the Pew Bibles, or you can follow along up on the screen here. But the prophet Isaiah says this in verse 11 of chapter 54. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. And then in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, and this was actually my fault when I gave this to, uh, to Val. I should have said through verse 40. Um, so, we will do that. Page 944, if you're in your, in your pew Bibles. But the Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 37. The Lord says this, All that the Father gives me, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And verse 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This ends the reading of God's Word. Well, the sermon tonight is entitled, Eternally His Sheep. It's drying here. And John chapter 6 is where we'll be a lot tonight. Um, we're going to be going to John chapter 3 as well and 10. And um, What I want us to see really is, is a picture. Um, I can't claim it's full, um, but nonetheless big and deep. A picture of God's love for us and in, in salvation. And how from our, our birth, from our spiritual birthday, all the way until when we are with Him and before Him at the last day, God rejoices over us in giving us salvation. Um, but before um, before we get into the Word, um, again, let's ask the Lord's blessing. So, well, Father, I, I indeed... Um, have nothing to offer without you, without you enabling, without your Holy Spirit speaking. And I do pray that um, 
really that I don't get in the way tonight. I pray that that you send forth your word with your purposes that which you desire it to accomplish and 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 you allow us to let it accomplish what you send it forth to accomplish that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive and indeed lord that my words tonight would be yours that you would speak very specifically to each of our hearts as you know we need in Jesus name amen so John 6 37 through 40 disregard the the 39 What we see is that our salvation, and what we're going to see is that our salvation is it's intentional, it's with purpose, it's with a definite plan. This is this is so important to know that our Father's plan for our salvation is such. The Father's plan is to give certain ones to his son, Jesus. And then eventually to present those same ones given to Jesus to himself spotless with joy and that forever for eternity. We're going to be looking at that word a lot. Uh, Eternal. Eternal. Everlasting. Unending. When we think of eternal or everlasting when it comes to God, we know that it means from vanishing point to vanishing point. In other words, there is no beginning and there is no end. Now, when we are given eternal life, it's not exactly the same because we are created. So we have, indeed, a beginning. But eternal life, when it is granted to us, is given to us and never to be taken away forever. And we can, I think, look at it and say, well, from our, our birth, our spiritual birthday, to vanishing point. Where God is vanishing point to vanishing point. Everlasting to everlasting. And so, before we get into John chapter 6, um, we're going to get into John chapter 3. John 3.16, we know this. We know this verse so well. But it says... For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life, have eternal life. Now I think when the Lord is speaking there in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, um, and again, that is one verse in in the middle of a, a, a great teaching and a great conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, but even right there in just that verse, we see a description of the plan of God for salvation. And if you actually, would you guys please turn there? Turn to John chapter three. And by the way, I'm reading from the Holman uh, Christian. So um, I hope it's not too far off from what you guys are putting your eyes on tonight. Um, But if we look at John 3.16, what I want us to do is see 
see it in sort of uh, stages or steps, like an order of a plan, right? So, God so loved the world, okay? And this is how he loved the world, by giving his only begotten Son. And now, when he says that, whoever believes in him, it's he gave his only begotten Son in order for those who believe in him, and then to what? To not perish, but have everlasting life. You can look at it backwards and you can say, okay, everlasting life is given to those who believe in the Son. They believe in the Son because the Father gave His only Son for them to believe in Him. And He gave His only Son because of His love for the world. You see, I actually used to look at this verse and and think that it was in some way contrary to the doctrines of grace that our Lord teaches and that Paul teaches, and that when we see the whosoever believes, somehow we have to make that fit or something into God's grace. Not so anymore, thank God. As I see it now, it is so clear to me that Jesus was given so that His sheep that were already going to be given to Him by the Father might believe in Him and have life forever. That's what he's saying. Ephesians 2 gives an even greater insight into those who are saved out of the world and then given eternal life. If you guys would turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me, please. So we see this, this pre-faith or pre-belief in the Son, right? This is, this is where we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 2, right? So we're in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believeth, that, that faith, that believeth in Jesus. The beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 is in all of God's children at one point in their lives because we have that point in our lives where indeed we are born again is that pre-belief. And I think it speaks of the world that God loved from John 3. So if we start um, in Ephesians 2, uh, we won't read it, but I just want to point, we won't read this part, I want to point these things out. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, and that's verse 1. He also says, that we followed the world and we followed the devil, the prince of the power of the air. That's verse 2. We also followed our flesh and the desires thereof in verse 3. And also in verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. And in that state, we were those in the world that God loved so and sent His Son that we might believe and then not perish and have indeed everlasting life. It was here, it was in this Ephesians 2 state that we were given eternal life. It was in this state that we were saved. I would like us to to read, I would like you to read along in verses 4 and 5. Paul says, Ephesians 2, 4, But God, who is abundant in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. 
By grace, you are saved. By grace, you are saved. When we see the pre-believeth in Him, in Ephesians 2, we could easily read John 3.16 right into Ephesians 2.8 and 9. It flows so perfectly. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And so, there is no boasting in ourselves at all. There's no boasting even in our believing. Reading anything like that into John 3 is is incorrect and contradicts exactly what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2. We boast alone in Christ, in Christ alone. And we rejoice in Him. We rejoice for His love for us. That He would send and give His Son for us. We rejoice in that He did that in order that we would believe. And then in believing, not perish but have everlasting life. And again, those two things that the Lord says there, it, it really is, it's awesome that we're promised not to perish, but then that we're given eternal life after that. Those don't have to go hand in hand. It's awesome that we will not be punished but then that we're given life as well, God's grace indeed is amazing. So, now I said that we rejoice for His love for us and that He sent His Son in order that we would believe. I said in order on purpose because I wanted to make the point that God didn't act in love merely to give the world a chance to believe in Him. God acted in order for His own to believe in Him and to have eternal life. The saving love of God is indeed, it's love with specific purpose. It's not a love of chance. So we've seen the the pre-belief or the world from John 3.16 in Ephesians 2, now let's look deeper into the whosoever believeth. And Jesus has much to say about who these loved ones are. So now, from our New Testament text, John chapter 6, would you please turn there? So John chapter 6, 37 through 40 actually says exactly what John 3.16 says. It just says it with more detail. And it says it in a different order. So John 6.37. Jesus says, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. That I will draw a line to the whosoever believes in John 3.16. Verse 38. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's draw a line from that to out of his love for the world, the father gave his son. See how it's fitting? Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. And liken that to those who out of love the Father has given His Son that they might believe, they will not perish but have everlasting life. And then continuing in verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So I think it's, it's important, it's, it's extremely important, for us to know, and I believe I believe we do, and yet, how important is it for us to be reminded of these things, and to be able to explain them as well to those who don't have a grasp. Eternal, in no way, speaks of quality. Life does. You could say life does. Eternal is more about quantity. Never think that you can lose your eternal life. If so, it was never eternal. See? And either Jesus didn't know what he was speaking of when he promised it, or he doesn't have the power to fulfill his promise, or perhaps even he is lying when he gives such a promise. On the contrary, of course, none of those things are true. If Jesus, the life himself, offers eternal life, if the one who is from vanishing point to vanishing point says, I will put you in me so that you may continue with me unto vanishing point. See? The only one who has the power to do that, if he says that, then it is true. Our salvation indeed, is eternal. It's not in John 6. Take special note that the Father is giving certain ones to His Son and that none of them are being lost of all that are given. So, we see John uh, 6 and what Jesus says there, back up, it backs up what he says in John chapter 3, that none will be lost. To further show a specification of intention with the whosoever, let's look at some more passages in John chapter 6. Uh, go down to verse 44, please. John six forty-four. we're going to read through 47. Jesus says here, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. That's why we read from Isaiah earlier, because the Lord is referencing that passage right here. And they will all be taught by God. And everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father, and Jesus is speaking of himself there. Verse 47, I assure you, anyone who believes 
has eternal life. Again, further in the chapter, in verse 63, John 6, 63, the Lord says through 65, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and the one who would betray him. Speaking of Judas there. Verse 65, he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. See, there are no circumstances, no capacities, no talents, um, nothing on this earth and no human ever that has lived or will live, even those who are in the group of the twelve, who can just because of their circumstances alone be the Lord's. You have to be given to Jesus by the Father, is what he says here. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Continue to John chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. We'll start in verse 27, please. I'm sorry. 27, Jesus says here, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. When it comes to eternal security, when it comes to what sometimes we might call uh, the perseverance of the saints, it's not only that nobody can remove us from the hand of our Savior, the hand of our Father. It's that nothing can separate us. And we know this passage, but I'd like to read it. And when I say, turn to Romans 8, please. And when I say nothing can separate us, of course I mean and Everyone goes here first and automatically ourselves. Even we can't separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus if indeed we have been given eternal life. So Romans chapter 8 and verses 35 to 39. Paul says in verse 35, Who can separate us from the love of Christ can affliction or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please take very special note that Paul is teaching here that there is nothing outside of the Creator that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
nothing of creation, no circumstances, no person, no power, no angel, no demon, not Satan himself, nothing. Now, you say, well, that leaves the creator. We just read what he said. So secure in his hand. And that eternally. Nobody can believe unto eternal life unless God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, makes us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2. So, we're going to look even deeper into this whosoever again. And we're going to look at what Jesus says in uh, John 10 in a different passage. We were already in John 10, but the whosoever believes, we go from that to all the Father gives Jesus comes to him. And then we go from that to he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. So we see that there's specificity of call, but now we see here also that there is intimacy and familiarity with the call and that he calls by name. So John chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we see that the Lord says, I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. And I will again read what we just read prior in verse 27 of the same chapter, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Jesus says he calls by name. Verses 16 through 18, Jesus talks about those who he will call in the future, and that all will come into one flock, and that there will be one shepherd. Speaking of the the one family of God, the one bride of Christ, pre cross, post-cross, all together. The good shepherd calls by name into the flock, and he does so, he does all necessary to bring them in because doing all is necessary, you see. Because we can do nothing without him. On either side of our spiritual birthday, we can do nothing without him. We read earlier that it's the spirit that gives life and the flesh does nothing, right? And we remember that Jesus says when it comes to him being the vine and his father, the vine dresser or the husbandman, depending on the translation, and us being the branches connected to the vine and that we need to abide in the vine and he in us and his word in us, right? That relationship, that beautiful picture of us being in Christ and not only positioned there, but living in everything that we do from that point. Jesus says in John chapter 15, you can do nothing without me. That's after our spiritual birthday. So, again, 
He does everything necessary to bring us in and to keep us because doing everything is necessary. There's nothing we can do even after we are made alive. We can do nothing to contribute. Everything is of grace. So let's go even deeper now and turn to Luke 15, please. We'll start to wrap it up. So Luke 15 is a chapter in the Gospel of Luke that that has three familiar parables. The first is the parable of the lost sheep, and then Jesus teaches the parable of the lost coin, the woman who loses one of her ten coins. And then we have the parable of the two sons, or what is commonly referred to as the prodigal son. But what he's doing when when he teaches these three parables is he's explaining something that he is, he's just been given trouble for. There's a complaint. It's a common complaint in the life and the ministry of Jesus. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. Okay, so from verse Four on, those three parables are, well, listen, scribes and Pharisees, this is what's happening. Now, it's very interesting that it says in the beginning of chapter 15, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. In chapter 14, verse 35, he says, anyone who has ears to hear should listen. And then the tax collectors and sinners Come to listen to him. And the religious leaders just can't stand it. And it's not because they're better. It's because they don't know the depth of their depravity. And see, the tax collectors and the sinners have a more realistic grasp. They're not full of self-righteousness. So when Jesus says something like, He who has ears to hear, let him listen. He is not merely giving a, a, a persuasive suggestion from the wisdom of God. And in this instance, I think Jesus was specifically calling those. You can't give yourself ears to listen. Just like you don't have a faith factory inside of yourself that you can muster up faith. So he says this parable. What man among you, this is verse 4 of Luke 15, who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now, don't be mistaken, please. Jesus is not likening the scribes and the Pharisees to the 99 righteous. Jesus is just likening the sinners, the tax collectors, to the one sinner who is granted repentance, who the shepherd goes after. 
See the specificity, see the care, see the intimacy, see the love of the shepherd, leaving those who are okay to go after this one, this helpless one, who, like Jesus said prior in the Gospel of John, in his flesh can do nothing. Nothing. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, those who are of the world that, the, that our God loved and he sent his son to save, those were the ones who were dead in trespasses and sins, who were by nature children of wrath. That's this sheep. And when Jesus is sitting down with the tax collectors and he's sitting down with the sinners, and when he does that all through his ministry, and he, he eats with them and he speaks with them and he shares the love of God with them. That is him as the shepherd calling his sheep unto himself. Or that is him like the woman lighting the lamp and sweeping the house and looking for her coin. Or that is in more detail God working in the life of his son to come to his senses like Jesus says of the son that left his father with the inheritance. To come to his senses and come home. These describe the tax collectors and the sinners. Each one of them is a lost sheep. Each one of them is a lost coin. And they're being pursued and they're being brought home. I think the reason that we have one out of a hundred is to show that the shepherd is looking for that specific sheep to bring home, the one that the Father's given him, to rejoice over, to carry on his shoulders, and that all of heaven might rejoice as well. And I do not think that any of these parables is talking about the Christian who has backslidden. Because that's not Jesus' intention. Perhaps we could take that truth and insert it here, but... Why? That would be taking it out of context. Scripture is, is full enough where we don't need to do that. Verse 7c makes the distinction between the sinner who needs righteousness and those who are already made righteous. That's why I don't think it's speaking of the backslidden Christian. It's speaking of the one whom the Father has to give to Jesus. And here's the picture of it right here. So, you see, it doesn't matter how far you zoom in or you zoom, or you zoom out. It's all of God's grace saving the lost, those dead who could not save themselves. Our salvation, eternal life, is all of God's grace. It's because of His love shown in His Son's death that was in our place in order that we would be sought out and called by name and placed on his shoulders and carried home. Now, earlier I spoke of God's joy in this whole process. Well, he rejoices at the first. We see that in the first two parables in Luke chapter 15, right? We see that I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Heaven rejoices when one sinner repents 
But not just heaven, the shepherd does as well. Because when he finds his sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. God also rejoices over us as his children every day of our lives. Sorry, I should have marked this, but Zephaniah chapter 3, if you guys would turn there, please. Zephaniah three, seventeen. Listen to this description of God's love for us. It says, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will bring you quietness with his love. And he will delight in you with shouts of joy. So, in our salvation at the first, in our walk of salvation through this life, in this sojourn. And then again, he rejoices at the day that we see him. And we'll end with this. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Jude says this, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Rejoicing before God, over you. It comes back around. Joy the whole time. So he promises to raise you up at the last day. Remember like he said in, in John chapter 6? That's the eternal life. That's the, the end where we will be with him. So let us not forget God's promises, God's assurances, and God's joy in those things. His love for us. Let's pray. Father, indeed, thank You and, and we praise You for Your love. That which You've shown to us and I know it is so much more vast than we know. But for what you have shown us, our hearts are humbled and they are reciprocating joy back to you as you rejoice over us. So let us live in that joy. And let us live in that assurance according to Your will. In Your name we pray. Amen.